Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 183, part two of the talk given by Father Ronald Rollhauser, entitled How to Hear the Voice of God. That's just the first part. That, that's been my own struggle. I'm standing here with you this morning, so obviously I'm still a priest. <laughs> I'm still committed. I still am hearing God's voice clearly and so on. Uh, but I'm hearing it with a lot, lot more nuance now than I ever did when I was a kid taking catechism. Although, don't get me wrong. One of the, the marvels and powers of a truly strong, conservative religious upbringing is that it gives you powerful roots. I remember listening to Richard Rohr recently, and Richard Rohr said, you know, he said, I grew up rural, farm boy, he said, Catholic community, and he says, strongly conservative, he said, my God, he said, my parents even voted Republican, <laughs> and he says, uh, strong conservative roots, he said, you know something, it's the greatest gift you can have, he said, now I'm free for the rest of my life, you notice what he's saying, I was given strong conservative roots, Now I'm free for the rest of my life. I work with a lot of young seminarians today, good-hearted young men who were never given any strong roots at all, and many of them are going to be struggling for the rest of their lives to root themselves, you know, to to really hear the clarity of God's voice and stuff because they were never given these strong roots. And they'd be afraid to read the novels of A.S. Byatt. They're afraid to read Nietzsche and Feuerbach and so on. No, no, keep that away from me. You know, because um, it's a wind that, that, that's too strong. Okay. So if you grew up the way I did, um, it's a wonderful upbringing. Um, it's God's voice, but like all experiences in life, it's not God's voice it's in, in, in its purity, in its, its pure clarity. Okay. I was going to give you um, ten major voices. I'm not just going to name them. I'm going to read them to you. I was going to flash them on the board, but... You know, somehow my, my stick isn't working very well in here. Okay. But ten voices that, that, that speak to us clearly, but they aren't God's voice. Let me just name them. The first one is the, the voice of personal grandiosity inside of ourselves. Um, That's just a wider term that we often say the voice of self-interest, of laziness, of sin, of concupiscence, whatever word you want to use. But inside of us, there's a voice of, of personal grandiosity. Secondly, the voice of wound. All of us, nobody reaches adulthood or even in your your early adolescence without being deeply wounded. It's not a question of are we wounded, only a question of what is our wound. You know, (laughs) you can put humor around this. We've all been dropped too often, kicked around, not valued and so on. Nobody has been loved perfectly so we're wounded, and that, that's the deep voice that's always calling for justification, always calling that it's a voice that's often full of rage. Most of our angers come from that. Many of our biases and hard judgments come from our own wounds. It's a powerful voice inside of us. Thirdly, simply the voice of biochemical illness and emotional and psychological depression. You know, we're, we're psychosomatic. And um, there's all kinds of psychosomatic depressions and so on that hit us. Fourthly, and very importantly, the voice of ideology. 
or what Kundra, the great Czechoslovakian writer, calls the great crowd, the big march. You know, it's interesting in, in, in the Gospels, in the four Gospels, scholars will point it out to you that almost every time you hear the word crowd, you can, you can supply the adjective mindless. <laughs> A mindless crowd, you know, see, cr- crowds, we, we, you know, we, we inhale ideologies all the time, the way we inhale, you know, oak pollen, pollen in the air, you know, that it's very, it's, it's hard to ever truly be sincere. Let me give you an example of that. Remember a few years ago when the movie came out, the, Mel Gibson did this famous movie on Jesus called The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if this happened here. In America, that just polarized right and left, you know. So the conservatives say, that's the greatest thing ever done. And the liberals say, this is a work of violent pornography. This is a terrible movie and all this uh, back and forth. Well, I was convinced that nobody actually watched the movie. <laughs> liberals and conservatives watched each other watch the movie. And then we reacted. You know, so often, if, if someone said to you, what do you really think of this? The real answer should be, I don't know. Uh, I know what I'm supposed to think about it, depending on what group you're moving with. But, you know, every television every program, every news commentary, every newspaper, and including religious newspapers, they have a slant. They have an angle. And we're reading this angle. All of our circles and our coffee circles and tea circles, they're, they're circles with an angle. Um, see, so we're, we're always part of some kind of crowd. That's, and that's a powerful voice inside of us. Okay. Then the voice of sentimentality. Just of sentiment, which is it's good to a point and it's not good to a point. Okay. Or the voice of what I call of, of empathy that leads to a certain paralyzing complexity. You know, if, you, <laughs> if you're empathic enough, at a certain point you can't do anything. Because you understand both sides. So in an example, let's take something that's highly polarizing, abortion, okay? Now, we can naively think, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, that this divides the sincere from the insincere. What's wrong with that? Well, that's just a simplistic judgment. It divides the sincere from the sincere. Both groups are really sincere. Both groups are moral. Both groups have a strong moral fervor. Both groups think they're really doing something for God or for whatever. And, you know, so if you get into real sympathy at a certain point, you become paralyzed. You can never pick up a picket and walk anywhere because you understand the people who you're picketing against. Maybe you can picket against Hitler, but usually moral issues aren't that clear. Okay? And so there's just, a, that's another voice. The more you get into the complexity, the more you'll find yourself empathically paralyzed. Okay? Then the voice of obsession, which for many people is the dominant voice in our lives. There was a great American philosopher, James Hillman, who just died a couple of months ago. Uh, one of my mentors. And Hillman was this outrageous man, and maybe the most brilliant man I ever met, and so on. But he wrote a book some years ago, quite a famous book called The Code of the Soul or the soul's code. So Hillman begins and he says, you know the argument between science and psychology about, you know, nature or nurture? Like what really forms you? See, in psychology, would say your early psychological experiences, 
They're going to set your personality. They're going to, you know, dominate who you are. And science, by and large, says it's genetics. <clears throat> you know, you, the genetic structure you inherit is going to be so powerful as people who adopt babies often find out the baby grows up and say, where in the hell did all this stuff come from? Okay, didn't come from our family. It's genetic, okay? So, so Hillman says, which is it? You know, Hillman says, it's neither. Hillman says, you know what the most dominant thing is inside of us? He says, it's diamonds. But diamonds, he doesn't mean, um, he said, we have obsessive angels and demons. And this is coming from a completely non-Christian person. He says, and that, that's the origin of our obsessions and our phobias and things that drive us and drive us crazy and drive us into love affairs and breaking commitments and adultery into all kinds of things and so on and makes it, make us too restless to sleep at night. He says, that's neither nature or nurture. Those are demons and angels <laughs> floating around inside of us, taking our psyche. Powerful voices. Then the voices of archetype, which is the voices of genetics, ethnicity, gender, the voice of religion, and religion isn't all of one piece. We're hearing all kinds of religion out there. And then lastly, and today very importantly, especially with young, it's what Kunder would call the voice of the lightness of being. Remember he called his great novel the unbearable lightness of being. What is that? That's the voice of superficiality, which can be so, so powerful. How? Well, turn on your television set at night. And, you know, I come home. I usually have to work till about 10 o'clock and I come home. And I'm tired. You know what I do? I turn on a rerun of Jerry Seinfeld, you know, or something completely mindless. Or Jay Leno's monologue for today. Just, it's just ridicule and humor and so on. It makes you sleep. It's like having a good glass of scotch. You go to bed and you're completely relaxed. You know, to say, life is a joke. It doesn't mean anything. Remember Seinfeld, who is, at least in America, is the greatest comedy, most successful comedy ever. And, but he's quite a philosophical guy. He says, I'm about nothing, you know. See, I'm just about nothing. You know, the, the earlier existentialists, you know, you started with the Germans, you know, Schopenhauer, and then you had Sartre and Camus and all these people. They wrote these heavy books, and they say, you know, life is meaningless. Maybe we should kill ourselves. Maybe we should kill yourself, you know. Well, today, our culture says, life is meaningless, and you know what? Enjoy it. Have a hell of a ride, you know? And while you're young and healthy, nothing could be better than the fact that it is meaningless. It's all a joke. And, um, you know, that, that's your, your sitcoms, your comedies, and so on. It's very, very powerful. It's a powerful narcotic. And we're inhaling it, and our kids are inhaling it all the time. It's a powerful voice. And it can, it can carry you for a long time. That's not going to carry you through, but it can carry you for a long time. Okay, the voice of distraction, the voice of survivor and whatever your sitcoms are and, you know, um, our, our pop culture. Okay, now, that's, those are the competing voices. How do you discern God's voice? Okay, I want to give you some principles, and every one of them is highly paradoxical. It's interesting, when you, when you read scripture, particularly Jesus, okay, you're going to see that there's always, on the one hand, the other hand. And it's almost like a contradiction. Um, and in fact, you see that in all great thinkers. Jesus, Socrates, Augustine, 
Thomas, whoever. Um, and that, that's why these people are so complex. That's why there's more than 200 kinds of Christian denominations, you know, because Jesus could somehow hold this all together and people break it apart in pieces and they run this way and they run that way, you know, or like St. Augustine who may have been the greatest mind in Western history, why for some people, you know, uh, that's the most perverted man ever. He said all these things. Well, Augustine said this, but 6,000 more things. And Augustine could somehow keep them all in a perspective. We can't. Now, you're going to see that God's voice, I'm going to give you one generic principle, then we'll, we'll look at this. It's almost always heard in a powerful paradox. It, the, the clarity is in the paradox. So it's always on the one hand, on the other hand. So let's take the first one. God's voice is heard in whispers and soft tones, and it's heard in thunder and storm. Let me just give you one biblical example, a powerful one. In, in, in the prophet Elijah, okay? Remember, in, in Elijah goes up the mountain, first of all, because he's really frightened. Jezebel is trying to kill him. And he goes up in the mountain, and he hides in a cave. And God is trying to lure him out to the mouth of the cave. Okay? Now, God tries a couple of techniques. <laughs> okay? See, Elijah was a pious Jew. And in those days, the idea was God's voice is heard in fire, in thunder, in powerful, you know, cataclysmic, natural events. And so he's, he's there, and he's frightened, and he hears thunder. He sees fire. He has these, the, the catechism. He doesn't come into the mouth of the cave. He doesn't recognize God's voice there. He said, then there was a gentle breeze, and then he came to the mouth of the cave. In that instance, he heard God's voice in the gentle breeze. Sometimes God's voice is in thunder. See, so that you, you don't have a principle like, how do you hear God's voice? Do you hear it in the big events of your life? Do you hear it in the Silence of the night. Uh, do you hear it at your daughter's wedding? You hear it in both. In fact, St. Ignatius of Loyola, the great Jesuit, um, in his rules of discernment, he tries to pinpoint this. And he has this, this, this wonderful little slogan. He says, when you're in the state of grace, crassly put, said, when you're in the state of grace, God's voice will normally come to you in gentleness. When we are in deep sin, God's voice will come to you more in thunder and in storm. So he has this little uh, image. He says, when you're in grace, God's voice enters like a drop of water into a sponge. He said, when you're not in grace, God's voice is like a drop of water onto a stone. It makes a splash. See, so God's voice can enter you gently. It can enter into you with a splash. Both. Um, you know, in the great mystics, the great spiritual discerners like John of the Cross. John of the Cross would say, God speaks to you equally in fervor. You've just come off some major religious event and you can fly, you can walk on water. And God's voice comes to you in deep, dark nights when you couldn't connect to God in, in, in any effective way if you said 30 litanies. You know, Mother Teresa, the last 60 years of her life, she just lived in a deep, dark night. But God was really present. Earlier on, she had powerful moments of fervor. Let me give you a little biblical piece on that. In, in, in Scripture, in the Gospels, and this is just a wonderful analogy. Notice the Gospel never uses words like fervor and dark nights. 
But they use this. They use Galilee and Jerusalem. Galilee, Jerusalem. Okay. In the Gospels, when you read that, always watch for something is happening. Galilee or, or Jerusalem. And you'll see that those aren't just places of geography. Those are deep places in the heart and inside the spirit. Okay. What are they? Or simply give you an example. When Jesus appears in his resurrection appearances, or when sometimes angels speak for him at the tomb, they come to the tomb looking for Jesus, he's not there, the angel says, he's not here, go to Galilee, he'll meet you in Galilee. Or he says, go back to Jerusalem, he'll meet you in Jerusalem. What are Jerusalem and Galilee? Very simple. Galilee. Galilee, quite simply, is the place where all the good things happened. Galilee was the place of the early ministry. Galilee was the place where they met Jesus. Galilee was the place where they fell in love with Jesus. Galilee was the place where he mentored their spirits. And Galilee was where their spirits and the spirit and ministry of Christ flourished. In Galilee, all the miracles took place. In Galilee, they walked on water. Seems in Galilee, every time they turned over a stone, an angel popped out. Okay. In Galilee, Jesus prayed in ecstasy. Jerusalem, the opposite. Jerusalem was the place of conflict, especially of church conflict. Not that we have any of that today, you know. <clears throat> Galilee was the place of um, the diatribes, and Galilee is ultimately the place where Jesus is crucified and is humiliated and dies. <clears throat> so Galilee is the place of pain. It's interesting, in Scripture, um, in the New Testament, there are many texts that, that tell us that Jesus was praying, including the one we read this morning, in the transfiguration in Luke. You know, Jesus went up the hill to pray. Okay? Now, but there's only twice where they tell us what happens inside of his prayer. And they're very, they're very different. One text describes Jesus as praying in ecstasy. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from the learned and the clever, revealing them to children. He's ecstatic. Okay? The other text describes Jesus as praying in agony. Drops of blood dripped from his face. He says, Father... Let this cup pass from me. You can guess where each of those texts were. Ecstasy, Galilee. Agony, Jerusalem. Now, Jesus tells us very clearly, you want to find me? Go to two places. Go to Galilee. You'll hear my voice. What have been all the best religious things in your life? When have you walked on water? Go there. Jesus will be waiting for you there. And then conversely, what have been the deepest pains of your life? Where did humiliation happen? Where was your Christ crucified? Where were you crucified? Go to those places. Those are privileged places to meet Jesus. Fervor, dark nights. You know, God speaks in the storm. God speaks in the cataclysm. And God speaks in the emotional cataclysm. And God speaks in the soft whisper. And God speaks in ecstasy. Um, God speaks both places. Secondly, God's voice is recognized and clear wherever one sees life, joy, health, color, humor, <clears throat> even as it's recognized whenever you see dying, suffering, poverty, and a beaten down spirit. God's voice is recognized in Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And again, we struggle with that. Notice the great paradox. You know, in the most joyous, pleasurable, best, healthy things in life, 
God is there in spades, as the Americans say. And God is in a very privileged way whenever you see dying, brokenness, pain. God is there in a very privileged way. You know, Scripture has this expression. And, and sometimes they do the whole talk just in this one. Uh, that It says, God is the author of all that is good. That's quite a statement, which we rarely take seriously. God is the author of all that is good. Now, let me kind of flesh that out. You know what that means? God is the author of the body of the athlete. God is the author of the body of the movie star. God made Michael Jordan's body. He made David Beckham's body. He makes the body of these gorgeous movie stars and so on. God is also the author of Mother Teresa's wisdom. God is the author of the energy that was, that was inside of the wonderful singer who died, Amy Winehouse. He was also in the wisdom of John Paul. And oftentimes, we can't put those two together. And you got John Paul, you got Amy Winehouse. You got David Beckham, you got uh, uh, Mother Teresa. I mean, we can't connect those two. They're connected. They're the same author. You know, that's, see, God is, the, when, when, and whenever you see health, you see youth, you see young people just in the prime of their life and full of energy. And you see people in seniors' homes and in cancer wards and so on. God is equally present there. You know? And we have to learn to hear God's voice in both places. And invariably, we're picking one place. Invariably, we're picking one place and we're just neglecting the other. That, uh, that's, that's Jerusalem. That's Galilee. God is in Galilee all young, energy, vibrancy, um, and God is in Jerusalem. Cancer wards, death, so on. And, or, or God is in the, the gray-haired wisdom of the elderly and the powerful color of youth. You know, one of John Paul's geniuses, this is one of John Paul's geniuses, was that he recognized this. And for instance, World Youth Days, you know, um, I used to study anthropology. I thought, this is an anthropologist's delight. Ever, I went to World Youth Days in Toronto. I went to, he, had, he had an old pope who could hardly walk. See, if this old, beat-up man, you know, with Parkinson's, can hardly walk, and so on. And you got all these young kids full of vigor and colorful spandex costumes on, and so on. And he's saying, John Paul loves you. And these kids went wild. You know, well, because that you can't order it from a catalog any better. This is wisdom, blessing, energy. See, this is this is Good Friday and Easter Sunday meeting. This is and this is Jerusalem and Galilee coming together. You know, see the voice of God inside of all that's that's true, all that's wonderful, joyful, healthy, and in all that's broken and all that's dying and so on. Um, and we, we struggle to bring that together. It's interesting. You know where you see that powerfully done is in our Eucharistic symbols. When we have Eucharist today, you go there. And three times the priest holds up the bread and the wine. And each of them is, is a very ambiguous symbol. So I take, take the bread. The bread. You know, on the, on the one hand, bread symbolizes everything that's life. You know, the whole idea of somebody bringing a fresh loaf of bread out of an oven 
its smell, its texture, and so on. It, that's life. Okay. At the same time, what is bread? Bread is crushed kernels that had to lose their identity, be broken, crushed together, uh, and they had to die for this loaf to come about. And wine, the same thing. Wine, highly ambiguous symbol. It's the symbol of festivity. It's the symbol of life. It's the symbol of everything that's extra in life. We celebrate with wine, but it's crushed grapes that represent blood. See, the Eucharist, it, the priest is holding up the two elements. They're, and, and one hand, they're representing all that's wonderful and alive and great in this world today. And they're representing all that's crushed and broken and bleeding and dying. And we're holding them up together. Plus, here's our world. Wonderful youth. People are getting married today. They're having babies. Stuff is happening. Fresh bread is coming out of ovens. And people are dying and it's being broken and being crushed. And there's violence and rapes and stuff on this planet. It's all there. You know, in God's voice is speaking. Uh, it's loud and clear in both. Okay, thirdly, the voice of God that's recognized in what calls us to what's higher, sets us apart, and invites us to holiness, even as it's recognized in humility and what submerges us, submerges us into humanity. Very paradoxical. See, how do you recognize God's voice? Well, you recognize it, first of all, and in, in everything that calls you beyond yourself. So that anything that, that somehow stretches you, takes you further. Say, you know, it's not good enough to be where you are. You've got to go further, further, further. Okay. At the same time, a voice that sets you apart. At the same time, it does the opposite. It's a voice that calls you to, into your humanity to be at peace with your humanity, to be at peace in humanity itself that submerges you into everything that is. It's interesting, we, we oftentimes don't recognize that, that baptism, baptism is, is a very, very ambiguous symbol. You know, when you're baptized, you're baptized into two things. You're baptized into, the very word baptism means to be set apart. Your baptism sets you apart. So now it pulls you out of your life and pulls you out of the world. And at the same time, it submerges you. You're baptized into humanity to disappear, into kenosis. It's a struggle. See, God's voice is always recognized in what, what pulls you out of your humanity and what pulls you into your humanity. So it's the voice that both soothes into humanity. It's okay to be a human being. It's okay to be weak. So, you know, God doesn't expect you to be an angel because God has the recipe for angels, can make other angels if he wants, you know. And angels don't have any bodies, they don't have half of our struggles, you know. See, angels never get eczema, they never get sexually tense, they're all kinds of stuff, they have lots of advantages we don't have, you know. Okay. You mean, you know, we have all this, 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 this complexity and, and what calls us in and soothes us in that, it's God's voice that makes you disappear, I'm just one person in seven billion people here. You know, I'm okay with that. And at the same time, it pulls you out and sets you apart. Let me do just a little piece on this, and I'll, I'll end on this. And, uh, you know, something I call the, the difference today, because it'll help you understand some of the tensions in the church today between what I call the canonic and the triumphant Christ. Okay. The canonic Christ and the triumphant Christ. Canonic. 
uh, since there's no English word, let me spell it for you. K-E-N-O-T-I-C. K-E-N-O-T-I-C. Kenotic. comes from the Greek word kenosis, means emptying. Remember, Jesus was in the form of God, but he emptied himself. He didn't take the form of God. He didn't take the, and then he emptied himself further and took the form of a slave. See, Jesus disappeared. Okay. Let me tell you a couple of stories to situate this. Some years ago, I organized a seminar. I was still living in Rome, and I organized a seminar at the University of Ottawa, one of our Ottawa universities, on what we call missionaries to our own children. And what I do, and I had a, we organized about eight of these in different cities, and I'd always try to bring in four or five major speakers, artists, or people who I felt best practiced who had something to say about this. But this particular one, we, um, we invited the speaker from Quebec City, a woman called Vivian Labrie, who's not a, she's not a theologian, she's a social worker. She's a woman who's worked for years on the streets of Quebec, has done a lot of social work with the poor, okay? But, but a fine Christian woman. So we invited her to speak, and she said, I don't want to speak. She said, like, um, you're theologians, and I'll be intimidated. We said, no, no, just come and talk about your work. Christ was for the poor, just come and talk about your work. But at one stage, she said something stunning. She said, you know, she said, I... I'm a Christian. She said, I'm a Roman Catholic. She said, and I've been working for years on the streets of Quebec. She said, and I work for Jesus. She says, ultimately, I'm doing this work for Christ. She said, but I can go three years on the streets and never mention Christ's name. Now, I said, I'm working for Jesus, but I can go for years without mentioning his name. She said, because I think that Christ is mature enough that he doesn't need to be the center of my conscious attention at all times. It's quite a statement. Christ is mature enough. He doesn't need to be the center of our conscious attention at all times. So this is like a grandparent. When they're at the barbecue, they only want the kids to be happy. The grandfather doesn't come and say, you want to hear about my life? You know, no. Uh, they're concerned about the kids. She said, I look at God and Christ. Said, That's what it means that Christ emptied himself. Okay. Exhibit A. Okay. Less than a year later was our general chapter in, in, in Rome. And we were trying to compose a document at the end, and the albates were from 70 countries, and so uh, this didn't go very well at all. Every time we try to compose a document, we can't even agree on verbs and prepositions, not alone on substance, you know. And so at one point, our provincial from Ireland stood up, and he said, look, he said, I'm from Dublin. I live in Dublin. And he said, right now, he said, that's the center of the sexual abuse crisis. He said, so as a Roman Catholic priest in Dublin, he said, I keep my head down. He said, and that's where it belongs. He said, the only Christ I can preach right now in Dublin is a canonic Christ. A Christ is not triumphant. A Christ, you know, who empties himself. Well, he wasn't finished speaking, and seven different people jumped up and said, no, no, no. The Christ we have to preach is the triumphant Christ of resurrection. Now more than ever, we need Christ in triumph. And they said, look at John Paul and the Christ he preached and the, the color and the way the world took to that. So my question is, who's right? They're both right. They are both right. Christ speaks to us in kenosis. He speaks to us in precisely as, as this, this provincial said, in keeping our head down, in the humility, in what Vivian Labrie says, in just doing his work mentioning his name when it needs to be mentioned. And Christ also speaks deeply in triumph, in world youth days and all, and stained glass windows and churches and religious habits and so on. 
Now, it's interesting. Today, if, if you want, um, this is simplistic, but it works. Okay. The difference between the John Paul II generation of Catholics and clergy and religious and the Vatican II definition of Catholics and clergy and religious, that's it. You know, um, the Vatican II, by and large, its theology, its, its, its ecclesiology, its religiosity is that of kenosis. John Paul II, very much, it's the, it's the theology of triumph of Christ. And they're both correct. They are both correct. And it gets down to right to the way we dress. You know, I'm a Roman Catholic priest. If I walk, if I walk into an airport with a collar on, I'm proclaiming the triumphant Christ. If I walk in a, in, into a, a, with a shirt that's open, that's the canonic Christ. They say, well, you're not even saying, Christ disappears. He's there. They're both right. They're both right. And, and today, liberals and conservatives, we fight. The conservatives pr- try to protect the, canod- the triumphal Christ. The liberals try to connect, protect the canonic Christ. And they're both right. See, God's voice speaks. It's clear. Clear voices. But he speaks clearly in kenosis. God speaks clearly in triumph. You know, God speaks in Easter Sunday. God speaks in, and, and the list goes on. I have others, but I'm going to stop there. I want to end with a poem from one of my favorite theologians, which is the Chicago theologian John Shea. Uh, and this, he's also a fine poet. This is a fine religious piece of poetry. It's called Halos. You know, a halo represents, you see holiness, okay? So how do you see a halo? Remember when the artists paint pictures, holy pictures? They always have a halo around Jesus, around Mary, around some holy person, and so on. So this is a piece called Halos. It's a wonderful piece. Halos. Even at Christmas, when halos are pre-tested by focus groups, they're still hard to see. Annie Dillard was scrutinizing the forest floor at Pilgrim's Creek when she looked up and she saw a tree haloed in light. She had caught that tree at a moment of prayer. But seeing halos is more than a lucky sighting. It entails an advent skill of sustaining attention. This is how halos are seen. By looking up into largeness or by tucking smallness into the folds of infinity. Let me repeat that line. This is how halos are seen. This is how God's voice is heard. By looking up into largeness or by tucking smallness into the folds of infinity. I know this, not by contemplating shimmering trees, but rather by once seeing a woman setting a table. I looked up to catch a rim of radiance etching her face and to notice curves of light sliding down her shape. She outglowed the candles. All the noise in the room left my ears and silence sharpened my sight. When this happens, I don't get overly excited. I merely allow love to be renewed, for that is the mission of halos. Nor do I try to freeze the frame. Halos suffer time, even as they show us what's above time. But when halos fade, they do not abruptly vanish, abandoning us to the sorrow of lesser light. When halos recede, they do as did the angel Gabriel from Mary. They leave us pregnant. Bravo. Thank you. Okay.
So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings, that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey, to maximise your potential, to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life is filled with meaning, purpose and joy. So God bless and stay safe.